Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. You know, Sue was talking about school reports. Mine always used to say, needs to be briefer. And actually, this message got so long, it's now two. So the second half is going to be on the 5th of July, I think. So, <laughs> True to form. We've had several prophecies over the last four or five months, and in New Frontiers, perhaps going back a bit further than that, talking about God sending storms that are going to shake this nation, shake the people shake them out of the way of lives and things. And the word unprecedented comes up, so it may be something that we can't imagine what it's going to be. Usually if you think about storms in your life, you're not thinking of a thunderstorm or a snowstorm. It's probably something like dealing with a difficult relationship or a broken relationship. Or you may be going through a financial crisis. You may have lost your job. Someone you loved dearly may have died. You might have rebellious children. (laughs) That one's coming up at home. You may be facing something that's brought some form of disgrace on you or your family. You may be dealing with a conflict situation that's arisen either at work or at home or in the church. These are all storms that God can send into our lives. It's said that there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are going through a crisis... And those who are going to go through a crisis, you're not going to escape. Um, I don't know if any of you have read the book by M. Scott Peck called The Road Less Travelled. But actually in there he writes, life is difficult. I'm going to be looking at some storms that are detailed in the Bible. And what lessons we can learn from them when we ourselves encounter storms in our lives. In Acts 27... We read of a storm in the life of the Apostle Paul. The story so far is he's been arrested for preaching the gospel of Christ. And he's now being taken to Rome to launch an appeal to Caesar. Paul is turned over to a centurion who's called Julius. And they set sail for Italy. The Apostle was very well treated on this journey. But as we shall see... The journey itself becomes filled with threat to lives of Paul and those around him. After various ports and a change of ships, the weather begins to worsen. We made slow headway for many days, and did the arriving of nights. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salome. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time has been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the facts. That was known as Yom Kippur, the beginning of it. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and great bring great loss to the ship and cargo, and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. The storm. 
When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they'd obtain what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Calder, Calder, sorry, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run, run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day, sorry, that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up and Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, whose I am, of the God whose I am, and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up, keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. The shipwreck. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took surroundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes and held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged to make some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they didn't recognise the land, but they saw a bay with sandy beach, for the sandy beach, where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to, to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The boat, the bow, sorry, stuck fast and would not move, and the stern would break to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. Thank you, John. That's a bit of a storm, wasn't it? <laughs> not only did they just have the wind rise, but they were actually blown along. The ship was coming apart. They had to pass ropes underneath it to hold it together. They worried about being run aground on sandbars. They had to throw the cargo overboard. They had to throw the ship's tackle. That's what they actually used to drive the ship, to steer the ship. That had to go overboard. They finally gave up all hope of being saved. 
But sometimes for us the sea is calm and the wind blows softly and we set sail. But at other times the wind rises, the sky darkens and we find ourselves in the midst of a similar terrible storm within our lives. You might be in the middle of a storm right now. And we can sometimes reach a stage where the sun and the moon haven't appeared for days and days and days and all hope seems to vanish. But there are many types of storms that we can encounter. We can have normal storms that come into our lives. The Bible actually says in Matthew that God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. So we live in a world where storms are going to come our way as part of the way of life. Life is difficult. There are some storms that we can engineer ourselves by our own foolishness or our own disobedience. That's the kind of storm that Jonah got into, if you read his story, when he tried to flee from what God wanted him to do. And in the way that he fled, that's what happened to him. He ended up in a storm, and you can read the rest of the story in Jonah if you didn't do it in Sunday school. God also sends us storms to help us grow. Uh, Jesus commanded his disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side of the sea. A storm was brewing, but Jesus was going to be teaching them a lesson for their development. Finally, there are the storms that we get dragged into by other people. And that's where we find Paul in this. It wasn't his choice to be on that ship. He'd appealed to Caesar and he was being taken to Rome. He tried to warn them not to set sail. But as they wouldn't listen, he ended up being dragged into this storm by other people. The sailors on Paul's ship took some actions that actually ended up making things worse. I've just listed some of those. So let's look at the ways we end up sinking the ship. We can make decisions in haste. In verse 9 it says that much time had passed. And they felt that they had to do something. And often if we're in the middle of a decision, you feel like, I've got to do something. I've got to get something moving here. But we really need to wait on God and listen to God. And if something's pushing you, rather than guiding you, it's probably not from God. The Holy Spirit doesn't shove you. He leads and he guides you in the way you should go. We can try depending on worldly wisdom to help us through, rather than godly wisdom. The centurion heard what Paul had to say, but he also listened to the captain and the owner of the ship. And he went with their guidance, their wisdom. If we go to the people of the world and ask them what we need to do, we're not going to get godly guidance. We need to seek a godly counsellor to help us in decisions, one who bases their counsel on the word of God. Something else they did was to take the easy way out. The harbour that they were in wasn't up to their standards. So they decided that they'd leave quickly and they made their decision based on what seemed easy at the time. But sometimes, actually, we're asked to remain in that harbour that's not quite up to our standards and to endure those poor standards as part of our life and our growth in Christ. They also ended up following the crowd. 
they actually took a vote, if you read verse 12, and Paul was outvoted. The majority said, let's sail. But when you think about it, often the majority can be wrong. The majority has sometimes been described as lots of people pooling their ignorance. God's kingdom isn't based on democracy. It's not based on voting what's right. It's a theocracy. And in God's kingdom, God rules. God tells us what to do, where to go. He's given us guidance in his book. The final thing they did was to depend upon the circumstances. The sun is shining, the sea is calm, and the wind's blowing in our direction. It must be the right thing to do. And often we will say, oh, the circumstances look good, it must be God's will. But sometimes we find that soothing wind that's blowing, that looks good to set sail, turns into a horrible, ferocious storm. And the people on this ship who didn't have faith in God saw their dreams dashed as the vessel starts to sink. They made desperate efforts to try and get things sorted. They wasted resources by dumping their cargo and their tackle into the ocean. They lost their hope. And finally, their foolish actions almost caused all of them to die when they tried to escape by the lifeboats. And what do we see in this world where people are in the storms that are coming their way? We see their dreams dashed. It could be what you're striving for has disappeared. Illness or financial problems has taken away what you were placing your hope in. People make desperate efforts to keep the boat afloat. They take on more responsibilities at work to earn more money. They take on more debt to keep things afloat. We also see wasted resources, people becoming unemployed, staff being reduced to cut costs to try and keep a big company afloat, or even people's income going to service huge debts of money that, again, they've taken out to try and keep things afloat. People lose hope. They put their hope in material things, goods, other people. And we see the foolish actions in the terms of gambling, Addiction to drugs, alcohol, breakdown of relationships, suicide. People lose hope and they lose what they have to hang on to. So let's look at Paul. What did he do in this storm? He and we serve a mighty God. And we may fail and we'll flounder and we'll sin, but God is ultimately in control. God is in control. And Paul believed God and he could actually say to those on the ship with him, be of good cheer. He was trusting God even in the midst of all the storm, all that was happening to him. It says in Romans, in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And Paul wrote that. So he must have either already written that, I don't know, or have actually had that in his mind when he wrote those words. In all things, everything that comes my way, the storms, the running aground, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. 
in this financial crisis, God is working for the good of those that love him. In this death of someone that I love so dearly, God is working for my good because I love him. And sometimes we need to take those circumstances that are in our lives and put them into place in there. Not just say in all things, but in this thing that's happening to me now, God is working for my good because he loves me. How can we rely on the same God that Paul relies on? How can we hold fast? I think it was David came up and spoke about someone holding on to eternal life with just one hand. We need to hold fast to eternal life with both hands. Hold fast to our trust in God. The God who saves. The God who's in control. The God who works for good. Jesus gave us a parable that gives us insight into how we can keep standing and keep trusting in the storms that come our way. If you want to turn to Matthew 7 and verse 24, this passage comes at the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's got some of the most famous words of Jesus in it. Um, Turn the other cheek. Be like salt and light in the world. Don't worry. Forgive or we won't be forgiven. Don't judge others. Don't do your acts of righteousness for men's applause. At the end of this sermon, Jesus wants to drive home an important point. All this wisdom that he's brought to the crowd. And this this parable is that we must be like the man who built his house on the rock rather than the one who built his house on the sand. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So the wise builder is not wise in a theoretical sense in terms of head knowledge but he's wise because of what he actually does. He wants to build a house which really is a term for a life really. That's what Jesus is using in this parable. The house is the life that we build. And he may see some lovely plots in some beautiful narrow wooded valleys with a little creek trickling through the bottom and think, oh, that would make a nice place. And he probably asks the estate agent, sorry Jackie, (laughs) does that stream ever flood? And the estate agent will probably reply, not in a hundred years. But actually this man looks very closely at where he wants to build. And he realises that if ever there was a severe storm, a flash flood, then everything would be wiped out. So he keeps looking until he's found a less attractive setting, but a place that provides him with a solid foundation on which to build. And he builds there, on the rock. And Jesus is our living rock. He's the living word, and his words form the basis of our rock. And this wise man entrusts everything he has 
to the rock. It may not be as beautiful a place, it may not be as shady, but it is secure. He knows that he can build on the rock and have a firm foundation. And this parable flows on from Jesus' words, providing people who hear it with all the information that they need to build a solid life. Building on the rock is not going to prevent a storm coming your way. Because actually those who build on the rock are often attacked by, the, attacked by those who reject the rock. And actually it's not until the storms come that the man's wisdom is shown. Without the storms, his wisdom isn't actually demonstrated to those around him. Listen to what happens to this house. And the rain fell. And the floods came. And the winds blew. And they beat on that house. But it didn't fall. The house still stands. And I listed before many types of different storms that will come our way. Physical storms, problems with health, emotional storms, unjust judgment from others, great disappointments when we've relied on other people, financial threats to our income, loss of a job through unemployment or ill health, or spiritual attacks. We may find that our children are attacked when we thought that we've prayed for their protection, but something comes in. These attacks will come. But our lives and what we've built will survive any storms that come our way because we're building on the rock. But what about the people who don't choose to build on the rock? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So disobedience to Jesus' words makes us foolish. And many of us actually are disobedient without even realising it. Because we can start with a very fatal flaw in our thinking. And we think that obedience is up to us. That obedience is a matter of steps and formulas and that if we follow these steps and we follow these formulas then we will be able to be obedient. If you look on Wesley Owen's book site you can find various books The Seven Laws of Spiritual Success Nine Steps to a Renewed Life Twenty-one Ways to Finding Peace and Happiness 77 ideas to go the second mile for our wives. <laughs> 100 ways to simplify your life. These are all real books. You can go out and find them if you want. And they're all described as life-changing. This is the only book that's life-changing. We can end up reducing our Christian life to formulas and steps to succeed. It's so easy. We love rules. We love laws. We love things to say we do this, this, this and this and we've done it. We've succeeded. We can measure it. We can tick it off. We love rules. We can have formulas for our marriage, for raising children, succeeding in business, walking with God. 
we get so confused and we don't see it that it's a form of legalism creeping into our lives. And actually, when it comes down to it, none of the formulas will actually work. When we build our lives on formulas, on trying to obey, we're building our lives on the sand. When we think we're hearing and obeying Christ's words, we're actually trying to build our lives on this fatal flaw of the flesh. Trying to be obedient, allowing legalism and rules to take its hold in our lives. At its core, legalism is placing our confidence in the flesh. And when the floods come, that will be made clear to us. Legalism is not actually a matter of rules and regulations and formulas. It's actually a matter of resources. What do we use as our resource? What do we rely on? And Paul wrote to the Philippians, we put no confidence in the flesh. So by trying to be obedient, to try and do it in our own strength, we can end up doing the works of the flesh rather than bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Do we do things because we feel we ought to as part of a success formula? Then we're letting rules and formulas take over. There's only one difference between the wise man and the foolish man. It's not what they want, not what they do. It's that foundation at the base. The foundation of Christ, the rock. And we sang in that last, no, second to last song, I stand firm on this rock. My life is hidden now in Christ. If you seek to hear and obey through your flesh, your foundation is going to get flooded out. We've got to trust the rock, turn away from the power and the greed and the fame and the success formulas, and trust in Jesus. Because if we depend on him, he will enable us to do what we cannot do ourselves, which is to hear and obey his words. Jesus heard and obeyed God. He did it for us. He sacrificed himself on the cross to give us a way that we could hear and obey his words through trust and trust alone. The word of God says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. That's in John 14. To the man who does not work but trusts God, his faith is credited as righteousness. To the man who trusts God, his faith is credited as righteousness. That's in Romans 4. And further on in Romans, the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith in God. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it because they pursued it not by faith but as if by works faith is the keystone and Paul then quotes in Romans he quotes from Isaiah saying see I lay a stone in Zion a tested stone a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation the one who trusts will never be dismayed 
I lay a stone in Zion, a, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and the one who trusts will never be dismayed. What a promise. Jesus says we need to hear, and it's not just listening. It's not evaluating the concepts as if we can judge the truth of what Jesus says. It's listening, and it's learning, and it's living it. Of course we evaluate what Jesus says. We think through what he's saying. We consider what it means for our lives. And we ask questions to grasp its meaning, as well as its meaning for us and how we put it into practice. But our object is to live what we've heard and learned. When Jesus calls for us to hear and do, he's asking us to listen carefully and thoroughly so that we can learn as completely as possible how he wants us to live. And we come back to his word again and again, time and again. We need to come back to it and learn each day and live it each day. You see, Christianity is not facts to believe or formulas to be lived. It's a relationship relationship that we enter into and a life that we receive that's given to us and our life is a life where we trust how how everyone wants to know how because it'd be so easy wouldn't it if we go back to our little list and we take it off and actually this doesn't necessarily tell us how it's a guidance. It doesn't give us steps. It doesn't give us the formulas to manage life. Could it be the reason that God doesn't give us a tick list is because that we can't control life? That we were actually created to be dependent and not independent? And could it be that when we go for all these formulas and laws, this gives us some control and makes us independent? And if we have to trust, we lose control. Imagine someone standing there and they have to fall back into someone's arms and they've got to trust that person. They've no control over that person. It's going to stay standing there for them or not. They're losing control but they're putting their trust in that person. So what do storms have to do with control of our lives? That's the point where we don't have control over the circumstances. When life's going along smooth and calm, it's so easy to rely on ourselves. But when a storm comes into our life, for whatever reason, then we have to trust God. We have to have that rock as our firm foundation and know that with that foundation we have got both hands on eternal life. I'm mixing my metaphors here. but <laughs> So there's a choice. Everyone builds their life on some form of foundation. Either a solid and deep foundation or a weak and shallow one. Actually during the summer months the sand around the Sea of Galilee becomes very, very hard. And house builders do need to dig down very deep in order to reach the underlying rock 
And it's possible that this was what Jesus was saying in this parable. You can build your life on a foundation that appears as hard as rock, but it's actually sand. You've got to go deep. You've got to give up a lot of things. You've got to do a lot of hard work. You've got to trust. And that's hard. It's very difficult to trust. It's much easier to take control, sort things out for ourselves. And it's impossible to tell who's genuine in their faith and who isn't sometimes until the storm comes into your life. It's very easy to sound like a believer when times are going good. But true faith comes when we have to trust him in the dark, when the sun hasn't shone and the moon hasn't been in the sky for several days and it's very dark. Then is the difficult time. And that's demonstrating the book of Job. Satan challenges God to allow him to take away Job's blessings as a test of his faith, of his trust in God. And soon Job is desolate. He's covered with boils, his wealth has gone, and his family are dead. So will his faith survive? Is his foundation on the rock? In Job 13 he says, Even if God kills me, I will still believe in him. In Daniel 3, we see Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, when they've refused to bow down to his golden statue, if you throw us in the fire, the God we serve can rescue us. There's trust. And then they go on to say, but even if he doesn't, it wouldn't make a bit of difference. That is faith. That is trust. And in Esther, we see Esther say something very similar when she's asked to enter the king's presence, totally uninvited, which actually carries the threat of death with it. If I perish, I perish. Because she knew that she was being asked to do this to save the Jews. She trusted that because the Jews were God's race, that God would be there for her in this storm. So, some questions for us. Do we trust God's wisdom when life is confusing? Do we rely on God's strength when we are weak? Do we look beyond the present heartache to God's purpose and eternal glory? Do we rely on grace when we fail? Do we run to God or away from him when times are hard? Am I building on the rock or not? We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.